0: Besides limiting the sacraments to the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the Reformation also embraced a higher view of marriage and family than had been held in the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, in the Middle Ages. With the Reformation, the clergy could now marry, that is to say, Protestant clergy could marry, and the married life of the laity was not seen as a kind of second-class Christianity.
1: Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. This is a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 101. I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. Strange pivots from church discipline to focus on marriage, particularly the Reformation's perspective
0: on marriage. Check it out. Jared, once again, it's good to be with you and our listeners, our faithful listeners out there. Last time I was with you, we spoke about church discipline, and in that, I mentioned marriage a few times. So we're going to have a couple of times where we reflect on marriage, particularly what I'm calling the Reformation of marriage, Uh, how the Protestant Reformation especially impacted that. We think of the Reformation, of course, giving us things like justification by faith alone and understanding union with Christ, as Calvin spoke much of that. Uh, But it was really a a much broader uh, kind of theological movement and impacted many areas, and certainly marriage. Uh, Marriage and family uh, were prominent among the many issues that the Reformers addressed And the Western Church before the Reformation, I think it's helpful to maybe begin here, uh, made, we could say, both too much and too little of marriage. That is to say, the Roman Catholic Church made too much of marriage in that it considered it a sacrament, right? In its view of grace and salvation, what we call a sacerdotal view that came to prevail in the Roman Catholic Church— which means that salvation is through the intervention and mediation of priests. That's just a big fancy word for priests. So this sacerdotal view of grace and salvation, which began in birth, right? Baptism, they thought, removed the stain of original sin. That's what the Roman Catholic Church came to teach. All the way through to death, where you would receive extreme unction, the last rites, They also believed as part of this whole uh, view of grace and salvation, this sacerdotal view, that one's life choice was sacramentally defined. And so your life choice was either marriage, which is what most people did, or ordination, holy orders. And that was what priests did on the one hand and monks and nuns did on the other hand. So the Reformation discovered that marriage is not a sacrament given only to Christians through the church. Rather, it is a creation ordinance given to all mankind in the state of innocence, right? Given there in Genesis 2 before the fall uh, and continuing thereafter for fallen man, though its purposes, as our wedding form reflects, are properly realized only in Christ. And I just recall for some of you who may have forgotten, uh, this is the language in the solemnization of marriage uh, that is found in Presbyterian and Anglican circles. Uh, accordingly, God has designed marriage, and it gives the purposes for the enrichment of the lives of those who enter into this estate, for the orderly propagation of the human race. For the generation of a holy seed and for the avoidance of sexual immorality, all to the glory of the covenant God. So, those are the purposes of marriage, which are properly realized only in Christ. So, in other words, all sorts of persons, as the Westminster Standards say, are permitted to marry. Non Christians are permitted to marry each other. But the true, uh, the true realization of marriage is realized only in Christ, as I just read. Rome, on the other hand, we said that they make too much of marriage by making it a sacrament. They made too little of marriage because it was rendered as inferior to the other life choice, ordination. It was seen as inferior. Ordination involves celibacy, right? Because of the assumption that even married sexuality was less than completely pure, the celibate state, that is an unmarried state, in which you retain chastity, in which you are faith sexually pure, that is not engaging in sexual relations, the celibate state was considered superior to marriage. So as a result, the practice became established early on though not officially until the First Lateran Council in 1123. A lot of people may be surprised by that. But early on, the practice was established that the clergy, and especially the higher clergy, bishops and higher, should not marry. This was what the Roman Catholic Church taught. And this prohibition against marriage extended both to the regular clergy, as they were called, the monks and the nuns, and the secular clergy, the parish priests, So the Roman Catholic Church considered celibacy to embody the ideals of the life that all Christians were called to, but which only the clergy, particularly the regular clergy, the monks and the nuns, properly lived out on behalf of the whole church. So the the clergy is seen as living this out. You can think of the Sermon on the Mount. You can think of The call in youth groups in past decades to radical lifestyles. I mean, we have this among us as Protestants. And the Roman Catholics would say, well, what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount and a radical lifestyle, what Paul means when he says, pray without ceasing, this is not something that ordinary Christians do or can do. The clergy does this. They live pure lives. They don't get married and have sex. They live lives, particularly the monks and the nuns, their days are structured. The The offices, the hours uh, of the day are structured by prayer, the whole thing. So that's how you do this. The clergy live out the Christian life on behalf of the whole church. So the average Christian, uh Joe Christian in the pew, right, is one, the one who got married and had a family without which the church wouldn't exist, right? If you didn't get married and have families, you, you wouldn't have a human race. Uh, you certainly wouldn't have a church. Joe Christian was considered to be living in a decidedly inferior state in comparison to the clergy. And you're saying, who believed this? This is where the Roman Catholic Church is in the Middle Ages. It's still there in some measures, but the, I'm, I'm talking about the Reformation, so we're seeing the background of the Reformation here. And all of what I've just been describing changed at the Reformation. Besides limiting the sacraments to the two ordinances that our Lord instituted, okay, so the church said there aren't seven, there's two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the Reformation also embraced a higher view of marriage and family than had been held in the Western church, the Roman Catholic church in the Middle Ages. With the Reformation, The clergy could now marry, that is to say, Protestant clergy could marry, and the married life of the laity was not seen as a kind of second-class Christianity. Well, step back here a little bit in, in terms of talking about what happens with views of sexuality with respect to marriage. The world into which the apostolic church emerged was more sexually licentious than even our own. That may be hard for people to believe, but you need to realize that. Sexual sin was so widespread when the church uh, that our Lord had spoken of on this rock, I'll build my church, and after Pentecost, the church as you find it in the book of Acts, sexual sin was so widespread in in the old uh, Greek and Roman world that the early church focused a great deal on sexual purity that commitment of the early church to sexual purity developed into placing a premium on virginity and consequently celibacy it's not a it's not an emphasis you find in the scripture but it's an emphasis that happens in the ancient church in the roman empire in the time of christ and the apostles perhaps 40 percent of the people in the empire were slaves And a lot of things could be said about the slaves of that day. Now, it wasn't racial slavery. It wasn't the kind of slavery that we came to have in America, which was even more problematic than that in many ways. But one thing is clear from that kind of slavery, it involved sexual abuse of many of the people in bondage, obviously, particularly women. So many of the women slaves at the time of the apostles and the apostolic fathers and the early church fathers, that's what we're talking about here, um, the the um, the situation with uh, the sexual abuse of many of those women uh, was very much preached against and testified against. So we could say even apart from slavery, a host of sexual perversions abounded among the pagans. So the world in which Paul comes and is preaching the gospel is a very sexually licentious one. Christianity emerged, we could say, in a world that, outside of the Jewish environs that had imbibed a biblical ethic, was decidedly sexually immoral. The world of that day, Christians, think Tertullian, um, around who's flourishing around 200 A.D., uh, promoted an ethic. That opposed this errant pagan sexuality. We might say that so opposed this errant pagan sexuality that it tended to undervalue sexuality across the board, even in marriage, seeing it as purely for purposes of procreation. So you get, you get stuff like that in Tertullian. He's sort of almost conceding, okay, Christians, Um, need to, in marriage, have sexuality, but it's purely for children. Does everybody have that? That's sort of what he was saying. Augustine, for example, famously counseled married couples to think of the commandments and the creed during sexual intimacy in order to maintain proper purity. So the ideal for many, particularly as the Middle Ages developed, became virginity. And it was seen as best fulfilled in the life of the clergy. So, and you might be saying, yes, but isn't the part of the problem here that some of those clergy, particularly, we heard about this in the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages. They weren't necessarily virgin. They were having children. Popes were having children. And there was, in the monastery, sometimes there was hanky-panky going on. Things were happening uh, that shouldn't be happening. Yes, these things are all true because you can't just sort of stamp out sexuality in this way and tell whole classes of people that you can't have any legitimate, legitimate expression of your sexuality. But of course, that's what you're telling them if you're saying you can't marry. You may not marry. You're cutting that off. Well, the Reformation, and it's important for us to know this, recovered a more biblical approach to sexuality within marriage, understanding that it was also for the well-being of the couple, as we saw when we talked about the purposes of marriage, a significant expression of their oneness, right? Sexuality within marriage is a significant expression of the oneness of the married couple. Part of this recovery that the Reformation uh, fostered included reinterpreting the Song of Songs, right? The Song of Solomon, uh, which in the Middle Ages, uh, if you read commentaries on the Song of Solomon, it's completely um, allegorized. There's no sense in which it's talking ever about sexuality, sexuality within marriage, It's completely completely allegorized. Um, So they came to reinterpret the Song of Songs, recognizing that this spoke not only of Christ in the church. Notice I'm not saying the Song of Songs is just about marriage. It's not about Christ in the church, because marriage is always about Christ in the church. Uh, But it's also, they recognize the Song of Songs is about the husband and wife in their marital relationship, understanding right, that marriage itself points to the union of Christ and his church. So we might say that an immediate practical outworking of this reformational recovery of marriage manifested itself in clerical marriages. So those who had not been allowed, that is to say ministers in a local church, not allowed to marry as the priests weren't, as the monks and the nuns weren't, uh, they started getting married, reformational figures. You can think uh, particularly of Ulrich of Zwingli uh, and Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, as a 41-year-old monk, while matching former nuns with interested mates, found himself a man short for uh, Katharina von Bora, who boldly claimed Luther himself. So Luther got married. Uh, marriage also provided John Calvin, and many others in like positions with much help and comfort. Uh, Sadly, Calvin's wife died only uh, after eight years of marriage, uh, and though he went into marriage proclaiming it was a very functional thing, it it was to help him in his work and so forth, and she did, he also was very devoted to her. So what we've seen thus far in terms of the reformation of marriage is that there has been a more biblical there's been a recovery of a biblical view of sexuality and of its place in marriage
1: not only did the reformation foster a more biblical approach to marriage and sexuality but it also contributed to a higher view of women and to a more biblical teaching on divorce more on that next time for more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchabor. Till next time.